Please be seated. Our uh, devotion uh, this evening comes from Second Timothy chapter three. And uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 14 and read down through verse 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The glass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, knowing that this is your word to the world. And we pray that you would cause this to be profitable to us. Be with me as I preach, be with the congregation as they hear. Open up our hearts, so God, and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All of you, I'm sure, know who William Shatner is. Uh, He's been around a while. If you ever saw any of the old Twilight Zone episodes, the classic ones, black and white, he played in one of those. It was called Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He went on to play an attorney, a lawyer, in a television series called Boston Legal. But, of course, his most famous role, and what really made him a name, was playing the captain of the starship Enterprise on the show called Star Trek. It was filmed on sound stages. Some of it may have been filmed on outside of the location, but I know most of it was filmed on a sound stage. But it looked so terribly real. It looked so real. The ship looked real. The console looked real. And yet we know that none of it was real. There was no Vulcan named Spock. There was no engineer named Scotty. There was no Dr. McCoy. There was no Lieutenant Uhura. And there was no Enterprise. To quote Conway Twitty, it's only make-believe. But on October the 13th, 1921, at exactly 9.51 Central Standard Time, a fact became, or fiction became, a fact. William Shatner was the oldest man ever to go in outer space. The ship went up to 62 miles. That's one of the demarcations for space. They were in space. They were up in the air for about 10 minutes, and they were weightless for uh, three minutes of that time. I watched the landing. I watched William Shatner get out of that spaceship, out of that craft. And he said this to Jeff Bezos, whose company developed the ship. What you have given me is the most profound experience I have. I am, I've got to put my glasses back on.
What you have given me is the most profound experience. I am so filled with emotion, just extraordinary. And I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can maintain what I feel. And I saw this, and he was overwhelmed. Uh, He saw the earth from a vantage point that very few have ever seen and very few will ever see, I would think. He had a passion for it. He had a passion for what happened in that experience, and it really deeply moved him. And I go from that to talk about the Apostle Paul was a man who also had a deep passion. The Apostle's passion was for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his church. This is a letter that Paul wrote in the first century to a man named Timothy. Timothy was a minister to the church at Ephesus. Timothy was, by nature, timid. Timothy was, by construction, unhealthy. And Timothy was one who did not like confrontation. And so the apostle is writing him. He says he hopes to come to him soon, but in case he is delayed, I want you to conduct yourself appropriately in the church. As you as the pastor, as you as the leader, make decisions about choosing officers, about teaching, about exercising authority, about exercising discipline, all of these things. So he gives this exhortation to Timothy, this young man. And the church is the abiding place for God on earth. I know Christ is ubiquitous. I know that God is everywhere. But there is a special relationship that God has with the church. And three things this evening, if I have time to get through them all. Uh, the significance of the church is seen in it, it, at, in it that it is the abiding place for God on earth. The significance of the church is seen that it is the reservoir for truth. And the significance of the church is seen in that it instructs the ways of godliness. That is what the church is supposed to do. You don't go to worship to hear stories. You don't go to worship to be entertained. You don't go to worship to hear some speculation on something that really makes no sense. You go to worship if the church is faithful, to hear the word of God read, and to hear the word of God preached. And so then the first thing, the significance of the church is seeing that it is the abiding place of God. Paul calls the church the household of God as he begins. Now, again, he's writing to Timothy. He wants Timothy to grasp the importance of the church. We're the church. The people of God are the church, not the building. So it means then, if we are the household of God, to make sure we patch all the cracks in the sheetrock, uh, to make sure that the plumbing is working in order, uh, to make sure that the loan is properly maintained, uh, to make sure the building is properly taken care of. That's not what he means at all. No. By calling the church the household of God, he is referring to the people, not the building. Southwest Presbyterian Church meets here in this building every Sunday at 11 o'clock. Sunday school at 945. We'd love to have you come visit with us. But we can meet out in the lawn, and that's the church meeting out on the lawn. And so what Paul is doing is focusing on what the church is, who the church is, and it is the people. 
And it tells us something about the spiritual nature of the church in Ephesus, or Ephesus itself, when he calls it the church of the living God. Ephesus was a very pagan culture. They were polytheistic. I'm sure they were influenced by Greek mythology. And the gospel had come to them. People had responded to the gospel and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who were at Ephesus worshipped gods that couldn't hear, gods that couldn't see, gods that could not answer prayer. These pseudo-gods could not give life. But on the other hand, you notice what Paul does here. He calls the God who is the creator and the source of all life the living God. God is the fountain of life. The Greek poets who were not Christians said that in him we live and we move and we have our being. So God indwells his people. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. Well, that Paul puts it to us that if you're a Christian, if you're one who has embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God's Spirit dwells within you. And the second thing is the significance of the church is seen in that it is the reservoir of truth. Paul uses words that are used in construction, the pillar of truth. If you ever travel through the old south and you see some antebellum homes that might still be standing, all of them have columns. All of them have large front porches. They're very, very beautiful. Pillars or columns. And what do the pillars do? Well, they hold the roof up. He also says it is the buttress of truth. Well, the buttress refers to the foundation. So the buttress supports everything. Paul uses these illustrations to talk about the importance of the church maintaining the integrity of the Bible. And the church is responsible to maintain the integrity of the Bible. Uh, it is to see that the truth is not altered. It is to see that the truth unaltered is preached and taught. Uh, the church does not guard the trust. If the church does not guard the trust, then that trust concerning the truth will be spoiled. And listen to this. The church does not adapt the Bible to conform with social norms. What Paul is saying here would make no sense whatsoever. Again, as he says here in this text, uh, I, uh, if I delay, you may know that I, I, how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so they are to guard that. They are to see to it that the integrity of Scripture is maintained. Now, he's not saying here this mystery of godliness that he talks about in the text. He is not saying that the gospel cannot be comprehended. He is not saying that the message is so esoteric that you cannot understand it. Otherwise, every preacher that preaches on the Lord's day, everything that's taught from the Scriptures would be worthless. If the message was so deep... So esoteric that it cannot be understood. That's not what Paul is saying here when he says the mystery of the gospel. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1, article 7 states that some things are not plain in themselves or clear to all. That's true. Some things in the Bible are difficult to understand. But he goes on to say this. 
The things necessary to be believed for salvation are clearly propounded. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's plain. And that's not hard to understand. It's quite true that there are things in the Bible that are difficult, but it's also quite true that the gospel itself is very, very clear. Well, the last thing, the significance of the church is seen in that it instructs in the ways of godliness. Paul calls the gospel the mystery of godliness. Why does he do that? Well, again, not because it cannot be understood. Again, certain aspects of the gospel are very, very plain. Uh, In the Bible, the mystery is something that was hidden that has been made known. In the Old Testament, uh, and again, they're the people of God. The Old Testament had no idea how they were going to be redeemed, who was going to come, who was going to take care of this. And even in the days of Noah, they said, maybe he's the one that will give us rest. So they were looking for the people of old, were looking for this one who was going to deliver them. But they didn't know how. They had no idea how. But they knew someone was supposed to come and was supposed to help them. And people, by nature, are religious. If you've ever done a study on comparative religions, and you know the religions have been in the world for thousands of years since the fall. And there have been so many different religions. Some of them were quite bizarre. But one thing is certain, these religions were mutually exclusive. They said, we're right and you're wrong. If they are all correct, then truth does not exist in religion. If they are all correct, then there's a contradiction in what's claimed to be true, and truth cannot be contradictive. It ceases to be truth at that point if it is contradictive. And so uh, the term here, the mystery of the gospel, basically he's talking about the scheme of the gospel, how it came about, what happened with the gospel. And you notice when Paul says this, the first thing he goes to, the first thing he refers to is the Lord Jesus Christ. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to say this, uh, he was manifested in the flesh. You know that's talking about Jesus. Uh, It is that Christ took flesh upon himself, the second person of the Godhead, who was eternal, who created, takes flesh upon himself and comes into the world. He became a man, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, and the flesh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That blows your mind. God, who created all that is, and these telescopes that go out and make these pictures all over the place, it's amazing. The galaxies, they didn't happen by chance. The creation shows order, not chaos. If there was some big explosion, I've blown things up, it's kind of fun. Don't tell anybody. But when they blow up, they're a mess. God created all that is. 
by the word of his power, he created all that is. And it, demonstra- and it demonstrates itself in the creation. And that one who created took flesh upon himself in the form of a baby. Jesus had to be fed. Jesus had to be changed. Jesus had to be taken care of, totally dependent upon his mother and his father to take care of him. I recently had uh, another grandson, and he's about four months old now. Babies make me nervous. I won't walk around with them. I sit down with pillows around me, and I think actually others are glad for that. But he has to be taken care of still. He has to be fed. He has to be changed. That is the condition of Christ when he was born. And it's made quite plain in the birth narratives in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 as well, that Christ was God in the flesh. And the incarnation of Christ was for the benefit of sinners. He gained nothing. He suffered. He gained nothing. Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Galatians 4, 4 through 6, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent his Holy Spirit, uh, the spirit of his son, into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. That's a very, very tender way of referring to you, Daddy. It is like saying, Daddy, Abba, Father, because of the work that Christ did on the earth. Then you notice here there are a multitude of witnesses that Paul points out that verified the gospel message. There's the witness of the Holy Spirit, he says here. Holy Spirit's, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, was involved in the conception of Christ. The Holy Spirit involved in the miracles of Christ. The Holy Spirit involved in the resurrection of Christ. The Holy Spirit blessed the work of Jesus as he was on the earth. Romans 1, 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Christ Jesus, our Lord, according to the Spirit of holiness. There were the witnesses of the angels who announced his birth. We read in Matthew that when he was in the wilderness being tried and tempted and fasting for 40 days, the angels came and ministered to him. Angels were involved in the resurrection as they moved the stone and as they announced to the ladies he has been raised. And angels were present at the ascension of Jesus as well. Ministering spirits, the Bible calls them, calls them. And the witness at Pentecost, as he says on down here in this Uh, which might be a a, a first century hymn or a first century creed proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. People believe the gospel as Christ said they would. This last phrase, taken up into glory, Acts 1, 9 says, And when they had said these things, they were looking on, uh, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, the ascension of Jesus Christ. This is the crown of Christ's exaltation, the ascension, the crown of Jesus' exaltation. And what it basically says is this, he did all things right. He did everything well. 
He accomplished his task in going to the cross of Calvary and dying for his people and being raised from the dead. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 says this, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 1 John 4, 10, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. What is behind the Christmas story? You've got a needy people that can't do anything to make themselves right before God. And you've got God solving the problem by sending his son into the world to redeem them. So what is behind the gospel is love. And so I would ask you this evening, where is your Jesus? Is he in the stall, the cradle? Have you never gotten him out of the cradle and seen him grow, seen him tempted, seen him interact with the religious leaders, seen him beaten, crucified, killed, and raised, as we read in the book of Romans, raised for our justification? If your Jesus is still in the cradle, that's not Christian faith. Then you need to embrace the entirety of the gospel. I love Christmas. I mean, I love it. I've always loved it. I love the lights. I love, the, I love getting presents, by the way. If any of you have something you want to give me, I enjoy that. I also enjoy getting things for people as well. But these things that are traditional cannot overshadow or in any way eclipse the real reason Christ came into the world. He was born to die for the sakes of his people. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why the angels sang the night he was born, peace on earth, because the great peacemaker had come in the flesh. Let's pray.